Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. Happy New Year. We hope you all had a great holiday season and enjoyed time off and got to rest and recuperate. But we're happy to come back um, this year in 2022 um, while we're still in our second season. But how are you doing today, Jasmine? I'm good. I'm still not over the insecure finale. And so it'll be a grieving process. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I and well, I'm, I would be better if social media didn't spoil it for me because I've been waiting to watch all the episodes um, until the end. And oh, I was like, why did I even, I'm like, why did I even do all that? <laughs> Only for you guys to tell me who got married, who got left, who had a baby. Like it's entirely too much, but hopefully I find time to enjoy it. Um, but today's episode, um, you all will be getting on January 11th. Um, So this is episode five, um, and uh, we're excited to be back with y'all today. So in light of a new year and a new halfway point in our season, we're going to be talking about aging and designing communities for seniors um, and what that looks like and where the challenges around it. And so we thought this was an important topic to discuss in the podcast for two reasons. Firstly, because a lot of planning focuses on kind of young adults and mid-aged folks, 18 to 50 kind of range, um, who have majority able bodies and lack any disabilities in either physical or um, mental or visual or hearing challenges. And very few elements of planning focus on um, seniors or youth or persons with disabilities and so we wanted to have an episode where we focused on one of those categories um, that being seniors and then another element of it was in live the COVID-19 pandemic and kind of in the same way that planning focuses on kind of young able-bodied persons I feel like society as a whole has come to focus on that demographic and so in the pandemic you would see oh well children aren't affected or young people aren't affected but it's seniors who are experiencing fatalities due to COVID. And it seemed like there was like a shoulder shrug around it. Like, okay, well, seniors are disposable, whatever. And so we wanted to have an episode that kind of highlighted the challenges that seniors face living in communities. And so we will pr- uh, frame this episode around longevity and lifespan and then we'll drill down into one particular area that's near and dear to Nemo and my heart which is transportation and so we'll jump into the episode right now.
Yeah. So when preparing for this episode, we wanted to talk about how long older adults are living, where they're potentially living longer, and some of the reasons that contribute to that. Um, And we looked at an article from Oxford Academic. This will be in the show notes. um, And I definitely recommend taking a look because it has a lot more information that I can't necessarily squeeze into this episode. Um, But overall, the study found that seniors and older adults in urban areas and on the coast of the United States are living longer than their counterparts in rural areas um, and in the nation's interior. So thinking about states um, in the Midwest and not on a coast. And so what they also found was that the non-metropolitan areas, so the areas in the U.S. that might not be as urban, They lagged in terms of their life expectancy in the U.S., but also globally, Um, and that metropolitan status, so how urban or, you know, less urban an area is, is a better predictor of mortality than their geographic region alone. So even if someone does live in an urban area, not on a coast, that would improve their life expectancy rather than if they didn't live in an urban area at all. And so another thing the study looked at was some of the reasons why um, there were reductions in life expectancy. So why someone's life may be cut short. Um, A lot of the reasons for death relate to circulatory diseases. Um, And one of the common examples for what could create a circulatory disease later in life is for smoking. Um, And so there was also, I thought this was interesting that Smoking is now more common in rural areas than in urban areas, but that used to be the opposite. So even as we look at some cultural trends um, based on geography and metropolitan area, that also can have an impact on life expectancy. Um, And some of the other factors were looking at educational attainment, income, insurance coverage, and race. And so Blacks in America have higher mortality rates, so their life expectancy is shorter than white populations, but this life expectancy is growing since 2000. Um, And this study was between 2000 and 2016. And the largest concentration of Blacks in the country was in the East-South Central Division that they classified as Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Tennessee. The longevity piece is also really important because um, the graphic I think you show starts in 1990 and moves all the way to 2016. And so even in that short time span, life expectancy for um, persons in America has increased. And so that just goes to show the impact of medicine and improved environmental conditions, improved air quality, and hopefully improved diet and physical activity, um, just even in that short time period, about 20 or so years. So what are some of the states that have large senior populations? And are they living in nursing homes? Are they living in communities? Like how, how are seniors distributed across United States? Yeah, so the top two states um, with the largest population of residents age 65 and older, specifically at least 20% of their residents are over age 65 is Florida and Maine. Um, and, uh, but as we know, like the boomy, the boomy, the baby boomers population is, are re- they're reaching that age. The first baby boomers turned 65 in 2011. So that was 11 years ago. Um, and by 2030, 26 states are projected to have the same profile of over 20% of their residents um, 
looking like Florida and Maine today with over 20% being over age 65. So in terms of from a planning perspective, why we should be thinking about this is because every day our population is changing and it's becoming a lot more older adults. Um, I think about those population pyramids um, that I looked at in geography classes and like, I don't know if it's the top or the bottom, but it's expanding and it's disproportionate, especially because um, fertility in the US is also going down. So the under 18 population was smaller in 2019 than it was in 2010, kind of like Jasmine was saying, in such short decade or time bands, you can see the changes that are happening um, in population and, and then kind of describing why. Um, another reason why we think about the where seniors are living and why it's important in terms of planning is because only about four and a half percent of older adults are living in nursing homes. I feel like, I don't know if it's Hallmark Lifetime, but I feel like on TV, they make it seem like older adults are always in a facility or in a nursing home, but that's just not true. It's not the reality um, because only, so yeah, only four and a half percent are in nursing homes, 2% are in assisted living facilities, um, but the majority of older adults, about 94% or about 33 million people are living in the community. They're living and doing the same activities um, that we do on a daily basis. Was there any information on how many were living alone or living with family members that you were able to find? I didn't. I think that's a good question, though. Um, and I think some of that, too, may be cultural. Um, so even if they may not live in a facility, um, I know I can speak from like the Black African perspective is a lot more they're going to be living with their kids or living um, with other family members, too. But I didn't find the specific stats, so. That's interesting. I think you would find that in areas where there's a larger, like you said, ethnic population, where there is Blacks or Hispanic or Asian Americans, like they're going to be multi-generational households. Um, and that's cultural and it's family oriented. And I think that also lends itself to um, the stability of that senior's life. So and since we kind of now know that they are not necessarily living, not as much or about 94% are living in communities, what is making it, what is making that able for them to live there? What's at, contributing to their ability to live in, in kind of age and place where they live without having to go to a facility? So that, that phrase, age in place, is something you'll hear us talk about in this episode a lot. It's something that if you Google, there'll be tons of AARP articles on. And it's the phenomena that a person can live their life um, successfully without having to enter a specialized facility like a nursing home or a um, 55 and up community or something like that. It's the goal of for seniors to live um cohesively amongst everyone else. And so the Milken Institute for um, the Center for Future of Aging has a great study that they do every single year where they look at the top 20 um, large metros and the top 20 small metros um, for their successfulness in aging in place. And so they have about nine metrics that they, or nine categories rather, with several metrics included that they use to kind of measure a successful age in place community. And so they rank the cities based on how they stack up on these measurements. And so I won't go through all of them. They're in our show notes, like Nemo mentioned, but I will highlight some of the general topics. And so 
Number one is general livability. It includes cost of living, unemployment, employment, weather, fatal car crashes, income distribution, healthcare. Now this is very specific to hospitals. It's looking at the number of ER beds, the average ER wait time, the number of physical therapists per capita, the number of cardiac specialists per capita, the number of nurses per capita, the number of physical therapy centers per capita, and how well that hospital ranks in relation to other um, hospitals across the nation. And then the wellness category looks at general public health metrics, obesity rate, smoking rate, binge drinking rate, air quality, fast food outlets per capita, physical activity um, outlets per capita. Then the financial security looks at banks per capita, capital gains, reverse mortgages, and the overall tax burden of the place. Education. Now, this is interesting because you're thinking, oh, they're seniors, but there's a lot of opportunities for continuing education. So educational attainment, number of colleges and universities, transportation and convenience. And this includes a whole host of things such as the walk score, average commute time, number of passenger trips per vehicle, the fare on a public transportation vehicle, accessibility of grocery stores, Employment looks at employment growth specific to persons over 65 years old, as well as unemployment rate specific to people over 65 years old. And then living arrangement. This looks at median home price, median rental price, the cost of assisted care facilities, households with older adults. This is what minimum we're talking about. This is looking at the number of adults living at home by themselves versus the number of adults or seniors living at home with other family members. And then finally, community engagement. They're looking at arts entertainment facilities, volunteer rates, public libraries, as well as the amount of funding that the state and or local government has put towards senior facilities and amenities. And so with that, that's a whole host of categories. From there, they rank the cities. And so how are cities ranking up? The number one uh, large metro was Promo, Orem, Utah. And I know Nemo talked about the Midwest kind of not being um, a place where we see the long uh, lifespan for adults. But this particular metropolitan area ranked high for scores of livability, wellness, education, and financial security. But because it is a more remote, I'm going to say, metropolitan area. It didn't rank high in healthcare. It didn't rank high in transportation and commute times. New York City also was on um, this list, and it ranked number 11, so really close to the bottom, on the bottom half of the 20 list. However, it had really high marks for transportation and convenience and employment, but it ranked very low on all other sectors, including community engagement and hospitals. And a lot of the critiques around this were related to population, right? There were long wait times, there were fewer hospital beds, there were less nurses per capita, and that has to do with just the the number of people around in New York City. And so the general takeaway from this study is that in a city, in a metropolitan area, there could be a wide range of metrics. We listed nine categories, which each had about 10 different metrics. So almost 100 different ways you can measure the success of an age in place strategy. But you can 
it's impossible really for one place to succeed in all of the categories. They're either going to be really well in some metrics or in really bad in some others or fall somewhere in the middle. And so I'm going to turn the question to us, Nemo. We are young adults, millennials out here, young, able, flexing, black and beautiful. Eventually we will age, even though black don't crack, we will age. And so what are you looking for, Nemo, as you think about your 75-year-old self? What would your community, what would you want to see in your community, either in this list or something that wasn't included in that list already? Yeah, one of the things that I liked about this report is that they were really inclusive about, I think I think they did a good job of, at collecting all the different metrics that you could possibly think of that matter um, for someone who's wanting to age in place. Um, but like you said, it's like, it's hard to capture everything. So, you know, as I think about myself aging, I'm sure I'm going to want certain things that you may not care for. You're going to want things that I may not care for. Um, but when you're older, you may have, you, you know, may hopefully have some choices in terms of where you would want to live. Um, like for me, I think wellness and the quality of life would be really important. I would want to live in an area where there are more options to getting natural and healthy foods rather than fast food, because that's a lot of how I kind of eat now. And I don't really see that changing. Um, transportation would also be important to me. I like to live I like to live somewhere where I have an option to take the metro just as easily as I can make the choice to drive um, or call uh, Uber or take a you know a form of micromobility, whether that's a scooter or a bike, um, and have that option too. And then community engagement, I think, would also be really important to me. Um, I'm kind of I'm an ambivert. I'm introverted and extroverted, but I know I'm going to want to be around people. I'm going to want to socialize. I'm going to want to be a part of other groups. Um, of older adults um, to, to continue to do things and kind of live a full life in that way. But what are some things that would be important for you, Jasmine? Weather. <laughs> Number one on the list is it needs to be warm. I'm not doing snow. I'm not doing rain. My idea would be somewhere in Mexico, just sun and beach and sand. But on a serious note, for me, it would be transportation and convenience, wellness, and I think financial security, because I think about seniors, right? I've retired, now I'm on a fixed income, quote unquote, um, and I've spent my life kind of saving for certain things and investing for certain things. And I don't want to be spending all of it on rent or mortgage or on property taxes and things like that. I want to literally have my money to do what I want to do. And so those would be the three things that are important to me. So I will note that Nemo and I both kind of highlighted transportation as being some of the things that are the top priorities for us. And that's kind of where we want to drill down on this episode and say, okay, out of all of these categories that can combine to create a successful or not so successful community for seniors, let's focus on transportation as that's something that's mutual for both of us. And so how are seniors commuting and what are their commuting patterns related to the rest of the population? Yeah, so we looked at a report from the U.S. Census Bureau. Um, check out episode four to learn more about some of those tools you can look at when deciding where to live. Um, so this report, Commuting Patterns of Older Workers, um, took place front using American Community Survey data 
um, from 2013 to 2017. Um, and I'll start with a point that I thought was really interesting, but not necessarily highlighted in the report. Um, and I noticed that um, populations between the age of 55 and 74 actually have the lowest access to a vehicle compared to the other age groups. So that's compared to the age 16 to 54 population and the age 75 and older. Um, and so what that means is that in their household, as an option of commuting, they did not have a vehicle available, um, not a single vehicle. And so as I think we, we mentioned with looking at these different regions and cities across the country and how well they ranked for transportation and convenience, thinking that a significant amount of this older adult population did not have access to a vehicle, I think is really important when we think about how we plan um, and how we design. But in terms of the population of adults who are working, um, the most common mode of commuting was still um, driving alone. That was about over 75%. Um, and uh, workers between 55 and 64 drove to work alone at higher rates than the younger population between 25 to 54. Um, but this decline, the driving alone declined um, as they got over 675 and so just going to show how the options, as I mentioned, even just having a vehicle, but what you can do as you get older in terms of is it safe for you to necessarily drive alone and what some of your options may be. Um, and then 12% of workers 75 and older were able to work from home. And this report was, you know, completed before COVID. And so I'd be interested to see how, you know, that significant baby boomer population that is going to be aging um, into that over 65 group in the next really five to 10 years, um, how working from home will change what their commute looks like and what is important to them in terms of where they move. Um, and so in metropolitan areas, older adults were um, less likely to use public transportation, um, even though metropolitan areas are known for having some of those more convenient public transportation, public transportation options. Um, and then uh, as we talked about in the beginning of this episode, in terms of why we're even talking about this, and why it's important to highlight is that older adults were more likely than younger adults to report having a disability. Um, and the American Community Survey and the census defines disability as a mental or physical impairment that substantially limits at least one of their major life activity. Um, and they asked this in a question on the census or on the community survey. Um, and it has to do with hearing, vision, memory, you know, being able to do things alone, how they're able to walk and climb. So um, in terms of thinking about all of the options, I think I kind of touched on them. You can drive alone, you can take public transit, you can carpool, or you can walk, but how do older adults kind of do this option safely and where in the country is it, you know, safest for them to do that? I just want everybody to think about their grandparent or their great grandparent, depending on how young your grandparents are, and think about them getting from your house to say the nearest grocery store. And if you would feel comfortable having them drive there, having them walk there, having them use the form of transportation that you use to get there. Um, and when I think about it, it makes me extremely nervous to think about my grandfather driving to the nearest grocery store. Um, and I couldn't even fathom him walking to the nearest grocery store. But that's a reality for a lot of seniors. Um, and the fact is that as you age, um, it becomes more difficult for you to drive. And so you become dependent on 
mobility services or your family members or friends um, to help you get to your destination. And if you choose to be a pedestrian or to ride public transportation, that also presents its own challenges. Everything's switching to apps now. You got to be able to use your iPhone and you don't have an iPhone. You got a flip phone. And so it creates a whole level of challenges. And so I took a look at some crash data because I was curious on how are seniors who happen to walk or happen to be uh, using public transportation, how are they faring in relation to pedestrian fatalities? And so... Older adults are more, are disproportionately killed in car to pedestrian accidents. The average across the United States is about 1.65 or almost two people are um, killed in a pedestrian fatality per 100,000 pedestrians. So this data comes from Dangerous by Design, um, which the link will be in our show notes. This is a 2021 report. For people that are 75 years old and older, nearly three pedestrians are um, killed per 100,000 pedestrian uh, walking. And so the number is is slightly higher. It's about one additional pedestrian. But you take into account that there are already less seniors on the roads walking and different things like that. It really is a high number. And so then they have um, a ranking of how metropolitan areas and how states rank up. And so seven of the top 10 most dangerous metropolitan areas for um, not only senior pedestrians, but all pedestrians is in Florida. Now this is problematic because Florida is also the state or one of the states with the highest population of seniors. And so you have the largest concentration of seniors retiring there because of what I said, the weather and the financial security. And yet, the pedestrian environment is the most dangerous in literally the country. And so in Florida alone, there were 6,000 reported pedestrian fatalities. And that's a really high number compared to the next largest metropolitan area is somewhere hovering under 1,000. And so it's almost six times more than the other um, states. And so what can be done to address the safety issues, um, particularly in the the transportation environment. And so Nemo and I are going to talk through some design examples and some kind of streetscape examples that can be implemented to improve the, not only the pedestrian environment, but the general driving environment for all cities to make them um, safer for seniors. And so the first one I'll get into is um, benches. I think that this is an underrated street infrastructure item that cities are afraid to have because of their, their I'm going to call it an irrational fear, the irrational fear of people without homes or homeless people kind of living on them and taking up the space and it being a blight to their downtown or to their business or to their neighborhood. But it really, through having that fear, you prohibit seniors and other people, and other people who might have mobility challenges from using the street properly. It's very difficult to my house is about a mile from like the nearest kind of stores and 7-Elevens and things like that. And so I can walk a mile without needing to take a break. No problem. I'm 25. But it's 
challenging for someone who's 55 or 65 or 75 to take that same trip without having a bench available and all the benches were removed because we're afraid of homeless populations and I think that's just it's just something that we have to think more critically about of how we're designing our sidewalks yeah when I think about Florida having that you know being ranked that highly in terms of dangerous metropolitan areas um, and I know we've looked at we looked at traffic safety last season um, but I'm curious how Florida does their speed limits too because a lot of the fatalities um, you know, as the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, NHTSA, you know, always says is like speeding kills. So I'm curious how Florida plans a lot of their, their speed limit and what some of the guidelines that they use. And if that, how, you know, that if there was any specific, like the deeper look into the fatalities, what speed, what role speed played in it too. Um, but in terms of other design opportunities, um, I think for uh, public transportation, um, I think diversifying the options. I know, um, you know, some areas do it better than others, but the accessibility of being able to call a paratransit or a transit service where it is wheelchair accessible, um, I think local government should be incentivizing a lot of the different mobility options that increase the options to use paratransit. Um, I know, uh, you know, I, I've seen over recent years, transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft um, having an option to find a wheelchair accessible vehicle. Um, but, you know, those companies may not feel incentivized to do that if they're not feeling that kind of pressure from, from uh, policymakers to make that available. Um, another thing I think about too is like, I know it seems simple, but I think about all the sidewalks that don't have any sort of like ramp to use. Um, like I can take a step off a sidewalk and cross wherever. Um, and uh, I don't really notice it in my day-to-day -day life. Um, but I know that's not necessarily the reality. Like Jasmine said, as you get older or as you may have a mobility challenge. I think those two are really good points. Going to public transportation, I think that when in America, when we try to modernize public transportation, it becomes to rely on apps and technology. Um, oh, you want to know what time the train is coming? Just download this app, download the MTA app. And it's like, well, what about someone who doesn't use a smartphone, right? They're, they use a flip phone. The information should still be readily available. I should not walk up to a bus stop and have no idea what time the next bus is coming unless I have the bus app on my phone. Um, all of that wayfinding information should still be readily available because there are tons of people who don't use their cell phones as their means of getting around. And by putting all of the information on an on the app or on the internet or on a service or you exclude people from using it. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember, like not as we want to advance into the future and get more technologically advanced. Um, it's like, oh, it's cool. It's convenient. But like for who, um, who is it convenient for? Um, like for instance, if it is on an app, there should still be an option where you can maybe text a five digit number and get instant updates too. Um, or there should be a 24 hour hotline you can call um, and being inclusive with those types of options. The next one for me, you brought up 
sidewalks. I'm thinking of lighting. Um, I think that pedestrian scale lighting, which is lighting that is um, shorter than a street light, it's probably about maybe it's about 11 or so feet tall. Maybe it's like eight feet to 11 feet tall and they're closer together. So instead of there being one every 20 feet, there's one every 10 feet. And so it allows pedestrians or a bicyclist um, to actually see what's in front of them. Those tall street lights are designed for cars because they're traveling at fast distances and so they don't need to see every single detail on the ground. And so I think lighting um, is very critical when you're designing a place for seniors to feel comfortable. Yeah, I didn't even really think about that. And I'm trying to think about all the times I, I mean, just even, I think we are thinking of an episode in terms of like women and sense of safety coming up later this season. But I'm like, I think of all the times I try to avoid walking at night. But even when I do, is it that the area is not well lit? Or is it that the lighting isn't serving me? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> which one is it? Um, and like you said, when the street lights are made for cars, it's like, yeah, what would you be able to see? Um, I think in terms of another option. I think the frequency as we kind of still talk about like public transit. Um, yes, it's like finding that information, but also once you get the information, is it that the next bus is coming in 20 minutes and you have a doctor's appointment that you need to be at? Or is it that the transportation is reliable and you know it's going to be there? Um, or if you're using another service that's offered, um, the reliability of it too um, is something that I think about. Um, so there's a really good example. There's an organization out of Toronto in Canada called the 880 Cities. And the idea behind the name and the, the nonprofit is to design cities and communities and neighborhoods for everyone between the ages of eight to 80 years old, for children and for seniors and everyone in between. Um, and to no longer think of youth and children <clears throat> and seniors as specialized populations. And so they have done kind of pop-up installations of very, a lot of the design solutions that Nemo and I just talked through. And so I'm gonna highlight an example that they did um, in Canada where they installed parklets, which are, you take up a parking space and you create a little park called a park lit they did seating lighting they removed vehicle parking they added bicycle lanes they added greenery they widened the sidewalks um, and so they did surveys before and after the installation of the people drivers and pedestrians who used this particular roadway what they found were that there was a 78% increase in pedestrian activity after the installation. There was a 77% increase in bicyclist activity and a 77% increase in the use of the roadway by persons with mobility assistive devices, canes, walkers, wheelchairs, motorized scooters, etc. They also saw a nearly 300% increase in usership of this particular street by persons who were 65 years and older. So the total number of people that they surveyed was about 7,000 people. 
And so the link to this study will also be in our report, but this just goes to show and provide some evidence to how the implementation of a lot of these design categories are not just Nemo and I's ideas or a planners from UCLA or a planner from Harvard idea who hasn't been tested. These are ideas that are proven and that are true. Think about your favorite place to walk or your favorite place to just be and think about the amenities that it has and think about your least favorite place to walk or your least favorite place to be and think about the amenities that it doesn't have. And I bet that all of those things that we talked about kind of rise to that list. Yeah, I like this report because I feel like it did a good job of showing the, the evidence, like the benefits that happen, not just like this is what we did, but like this is the stats to show that it really worked and that hopefully other cities can implement it and take inspiration from it as well. Um, and kind of like you were just saying, Jasmine, when you think about places that you like and places that you want to be and places that you want to travel through, it it's really a lot of unlearning. And we talked about this a lot in season one, but a lot of like unlearning our built environment and the way that it's been constructed over maybe the last 50 to 100 years. But it's like, as people, we can evolve and we can evolve and make places more human and make places serve more people. We don't have to keep doing the same things that exclude people based on their physical ability or based on their age or based on their race or based on their income. But we can now, now we have the information, we have the data, we know what's been working. We can include those and really just make environments better for all people. And that's the word of the day. Um, do you have any takeaways, Nemo, from this episode? Um, yeah, no, I think for me, um, really kind of just a reason of why we wanted to talk about this. I, I know it doesn't necessarily um, go with like some of the maybe the other topics we've been talking about this season or in past seasons, but I think it's a nice, you know, it's a nice moment to kind of take a step back. Um, and really dig into a specific group um, and how we can add things and in our daily lives be more inclusive. I know um, in some folks who may be listening, you may have a position or a role where you may have some policy making decision or you may have some budgetary decisions where you can say, can we add this in our budget to make things more accessible for older populations. Um, and maybe even this episode, just hearing this episode will kind of remind you, I know there's been times in past jobs that I've had where, you know, I was checked or someone checked me and was like, did you notice that this isn't accessible? Or did you notice there's no elevator here? Did you notice there's no ramp? Um, and like, oh, wow, no, I didn't know that. And so I would just say that my takeaway is just to remember to, we can always continue to learn and grow um, and then, you know, implement it if we have the option to in our own communities. And so that's it. We drop episodes every other Tuesday and we will see y'all on the other side. Peace out, y'all.